We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Acts chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1, Acts chapter 13. It says here, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there, was a certain, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the islands to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the uh, proconsuls, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Then Elymas the sorcerer, for, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw that he, what he had done, what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading... After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. 
And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, and behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should, put, uh, that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, the promise, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he set up, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure, sure mercies of David. Therefore he also said in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what you have spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, your despisers, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe though one were to declare, declare it, it to you. Verse 42, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. In contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of, of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and came to Iconium 
and the, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn them to the 28th chapter in Genesis this morning. Genesis 28. There are some good words of encouragement in this portion of Scripture. I hope you will agree by the time we complete our study this morning. After the debacle over the birthright and the blessing, as you recall, Enoch wanted to kill I'm sorry, Enoch. Esau wanted to kill Jacob, but Rebekah and Isaac sent Jacob away to Paddan Aram in the city of Haran to get away from Esau and find a wife. And this begins a 20-year portion of Jacob's life, which we can read uh, all the way through chapter 31 about, and we shall, Lord willing, in the upcoming weeks. Let's read in chapter 28 and see what we find here. We'll start with the first, oh, uh, nine verses. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went and went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had, or we might say had already. So go back for one second, if you would please, to what we looked at last week. Isaac, in his mind, was going to bless Esau. Remember? He said, Esau, come. Uh, Interestingly, we see in chapter 28, it says, Then Isaac called Jacob. Well, he called Esau in the last chapter. Now he calls Jacob. Should have maybe switched those around, but he, he didn't realize that. We might chalk that up to forgetfulness on his part. You know, he uh, was planning to bless his eldest son and forgotten that God had promised that the younger would be the more prominent. It was 77 years since the twins were born, and God had given that somewhat strange message about the, the one being stronger than the other, about the uh, older serving the younger, which is the reverse of what you would think in that culture. And we'd like to think that his mistake was an honest mistake of memory, but that would be certainly a bad on him because he should have remembered that important of a, of a matter. But maybe that's because we just don't think the situation is all that important. Like, what's the big deal? And that would be a bad on us because this relates to a very large kind of feature of 
biblical theology and the history of the world. Remember that Esau despised and sold his birthright and decided to chase after pagan women and and multiple such wives. Also remember the parents had a problem with partiality. Uh, Mom favored one, dad favored the other one. Not a good issue there. Uh, Isaac liked Esau because he was an outdoorsman and Rebekah was favoring toward Jacob. So there's more than mere forgetfulness going on here. What excuse could you conjure up if God tells you something very clearly and then you just forget it? That's not good, is it? God tells you something very clearly. He's given us his word. There's no mystery here. I mean, there may be hard passages to understand, but there's not... No, there, there are resources for you to work at those, to ask questions, to get help with them. But if God tells you something clearly and you forget it, you ignore it, you diss it, you just put it aside, what kind of excuse can you come up with? In this case, uh, Rebecca had prayed, God, what's going on with me? And God especially came to them and gave them a, some information from heaven. That's significant. We, we, we need to treat God's revelation very carefully, very, very uh, with great reverence, I should say, instead of just kind of putting it out of our mind and going off our own way. Now, it's still true that the deceit by Jacob uh, wasn't right, but God used it to expose Isaac's backward way of thinking about God's plan. In other words, Isaac was wrong in his approach to blessing Esau, then God permitted this, uh, this distasteful event to occur to get him back kind of turned around in the right direction. God cleverly arranged to permit this bit of sin by Jacob to accomplish a larger purpose, namely to remind Isaac that the Abrahamic promise was to go through the second son, not the first one. God does that sort of thing. He arranges all of the events of the world, even the sinful things, to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And remember, in that, God never requires you to sin to do his will. You can't say, oh, God's kind of stuck me into this situation, and the only way I can get out of it is by doing something wrong. No, you never have to do that. Now, sometimes when you do do that, God's, I mean, all the time, he's still in charge. He still superintends and oversees the whole situation, but he never requires you to sin. There is no duty that you have to do before God in which you have to sin in order to accomplish that duty. So after a short bit of time passed, Isaac has kind of gotten his head screwed on straight now. You know, he's, he's kind of moved out of the forgetful or the foolish stage in his older age here, and he's got, okay, I realized what I was supposed to do. He was, he was able to call Jacob um, and give him instructions and offer him a shall we say, more natural blessing, a more natural blessing. And so Isaac gave instructions to his son, and uh, he said, first of all, you need to go far away. You need to go far away because uh, your brother's trying to kill you. So best to move away for a little while. In fact, mom thought that uh, I'll, you know, I'll send him away for a few days, and then I'll call him back again. Now, for them, a few days probably meant months at least a year, but she probably didn't have in mind 20 years, which is what it turned out to be in the end, and that she would die during those 20 years and never see her son again. 
That is a steep price for the deception that she had worked with her son against her husband. They did not follow Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. When you, when you don't follow those rules that God has set in place, they're almost really not rules. They're like, they're like the, the best advice that God can give you, a course of action that will prevent you from going down a wrong path, and you, for, you forget those, you don't obey those, you're going to have problems, just guaranteed. Well, Esau was very angry about all of this, and uh, he, was, uh, you know, he did hold himself back from committing second-degree murder, but he was premeditating what he was going to do in the future, so he was just going to be guilty of first-degree murder if everything worked out the way that he had initially planned, but he cooled down after a while, and we'll see that. So Isaac tells his son Jacob, first of all, you've got to go far away. Second of all, you've got to find a wife. Uh, you know, you're old enough now to have a wife. Remember how old he was from last time? Quite elderly. Isaac was instructed to find a wife from their extended clan, namely from his cousins on his mom's side through Uncle Laban. Rebekah could not take it if her second son became unequally yoked with the pagan idolatrous women from the area around where they lived. So Isaac directed his son on behalf of his wife, you know, mom would die if you went and did what your brother did. Don't do that. So let's go the way that I went and found a wife back from the clan back home who evidently, I, I take from this, believed in the true and living God somehow, some way. Thirdly, not only go far away, not only find a wife, but he says basically be blessed by God. In verses 3 and 4, Isaac passes down to Jacob the explicit blessing of Abraham. Read these slowly and digest them. They're not just empty words. These are powerful. Think about them from Isaac's perspective as he gives that blessing and as he passes the mantle, as it were, of the Abrahamic covenant to the next generation. And then think of it from Jacob's perspective. Put yourself in the elder's shoes and now take yourself out of his shoes and put your mind in the shoes of the younger man who is receiving from his father, 60 years older than he is, these blessings. And think like this. My dad is praying for me that God Almighty would bless me that God would make me fruitful and multiply me, that God would give me the blessing of Abraham and your people after you. And my dad is praying for me that God would cause me to inherit the land, which was part of the promise, and also a large posterity to be able to fill that land. The land doesn't do much good if you don't have people to fill it, does it? People to work it, people to use it. Jacob was presently a stranger in that land. He wasn't settled there. He didn't own it outright, and probably like his dad, he was always bouncing around, dodging you know, Philistines who were complaining about water rights and stopping up wells and all of this crazy stuff that was going on there. And he didn't have a settled home yet. Hebrews tells us they wandered about in this land, this land of promise, not having you know, a, a, a firm hold on it because God had not fully given it to them. He had deeded it to them, but not fully implemented that deed. 
And so you can read these in verses 3 to 4. Think about this. How can, I, how can I express this? Dads, someday you may have the opportunity to talk to your children like this. When you come to the end of your days, near to the end, maybe it's a little premature like uh, old Isaac here. He had a few more decades to go, but when you're 137, like we said, we'll forgive you for thinking you're on your last leg. Uh, you may have that opportunity to ask God to bless your, your son, to uh, make him fruitful, multiply him. You may not be able to pray the blessing of Abraham per se because that was for them and we're blessed under the terms of the Abrahamic covenant by being uh, those who are justified by faith in Christ, but uh, we certainly can pray that the God of Abraham would bless our children and uh, that he would uh, inherit the land. And perhaps God would give you a portion of ground and he would give you a home and he would fill that home. Amen. Well, verse 5 gives us a summary of uh, the record of what happened. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And so we just kind of summarize what's going to happen here. We're going to dig into that a little bit more. Now, meanwhile, Esau, uh, the uh, black sheep of the family, we'll say, the, uh, the guy who you know went astray, uh, we don't know exactly how long it took him to recognize his wives were a problem. Remember, he married when he, who was how old? 40. Now he's in his 70s. And he, it says he saw that Isaac blessed Jacob. He saw that his brother obeyed his dad. He saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. Was he just a little bit asleep at the switch? Like, did it take him 30-odd years to figure out Oh, my dad and mom aren't happy about this choice of spouses. That I should have obeyed them. The seeing changed his thoughts about how to please his parents. Now, so what he did was he went and he took a wife that he thought would be more acceptable to his parents. I don't know that this signals a reformation to Esau's behavior to become more godly. Rather, it seems like he changed his behavior to be more pleasing to his parents on a human level. But pleasing people is never the right first motivation for behavior, is it? It's not clear that his goal was to be truly obedient to his parents either, just rather to get by. His goal, however, should have been to please whom? We don't please man, first of all. Of course, when we please God, we will, we will be encouraging to fellow believers. We won't be encouraging to, to unbelievers. They will be frustrated at how we want to live for God. But he didn't please he didn't desire in his heart the most to please god and since that was the case he added really another sin to his collection by adding a third wife god designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life 
not a polygamous relationship or the other way around. I can't think of the word for that one. But uh, anyway, it's also plausible that the fact that she, this wife, comes from the rejected line of Ishmael is another strike against Esau. She could have been a believer in the true God, but perhaps not. What Esau schemed to do to gain favor actually reduced his standing yet further in the eyes of God and probably also in his parents' eyes. He had two wives. He added a third. Three wrongs don't make a right. You can't add more wrongs and and try to get out of what you had done before. Lesson here is we need to have the right motivation for when we do things. And that motivation needs to be first in the sight of God. He is the one that we must seek to obey and honor and please. Now, in the last uh, section of the chapter, which starts in verse number 10, Jacob is going to journey to Haran and to Paddan Aram and to his extended family over there that he hasn't seen or heard from in a long time. And so it says, Jacob went out from Beersheba toward the south and he went toward Haran And he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold. Now, listen. Suspend disbelief just for a moment. I know that you have had some very strange dreams, right? The strangest dreams come when I'm not feeling well. I have a fever. Have you had those before? Oh, it's miserable. He didn't have a fever, but he had a dream that God was using to communicate something to him, a truth that we want to get to that connects to the picture that he saw. So he dreamed, and behold, a ladder, or we might translate a staircase, was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold... The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Does that sound familiar? Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Wow. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he, actually, the Lord is in every place, and he didn't maybe realize it. But, and he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. That's Beth El. Bait is house and El is God. We call it Beit El. And this is the gate of heaven. This is like the portal to the other world. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going, And give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. 
So as God met with Abraham before, as God met with Isaac several times before, so also God made himself known to Jacob. The circumstances were memorable for him and for us. We all know about the the staircase or ladder to heaven, Jacob's ladder as it's known. Put yourself in Jacob's place now, if you would, please. I asked you to do that earlier, but I ask you to use your imagination now to put it Put yourself in his place again. Perhaps he's going with a servant or two, maybe an animal to bring a few things with him. But other than that, he's single. He's lonely. He's traveling far from home, thinking it's possible that he won't be back for a while. You're putting yourself in his shoes, leaving behind everything you have known up until now. Traveling with a conscience that knew you had done something terribly wrong to your dad. Could you use a little encouragement, maybe, at this point in your life? To the point of the duration of Jacob's journey, you know, I said this before, his mom thought it would just be a few days. The reality was that it was two decades. It's a family tragedy. Mom died in the meanwhile, and all because of the deception that they worked against the father. They didn't follow the pattern that God had for their family. Now, Jacob, uh, it says, came to a place and stayed there, and he took one of the stones. And um, oftentimes people say that, uh, you know, he took a stone and that became his pillow. Um, Perhaps he propped up his head on that pillow, but on that stone. But, you know, really stones don't make good pillows, do they? They're not very contouring, form-fitting, very soft the end of the chapter tells us what the stone really became and what its significance was. During his sleep that evening, Jacob dreams of a very tall ladder or staircase that reached from earth to heaven. The angels were using the ladder to move up and down between heaven and earth. Have you ever wondered what this means? I'll try to tell you what it means. This is a vision that indicates the connection of God to the events on earth. Heaven is far away, but it's not so far away that God doesn't easily traverse from heaven to earth and send his angels to minister for him on behalf of him down to this earth. I want you to see that this vision, in this vision, God is indicating his connection, his his closeness to the affairs of mankind on the earth. God is not the deist God that winds up the universe like a clock and then walks away and lets it wind down. God is not the pantheist God, where God is everything that we call creation. He's not that God, integrally a part of the material world, not outside of it. Rather, God is both transcendent, that means above all, and he's also immanent, that's I-M-M-A, N-E-N-T, not imminent, like you know, soon coming, the, the imminent return of Christ. We talk about him being transcendent. We talk him about, about him being imminent here with us, God with us. That be, you know, came to no greater realization than when John chapter 1 and verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was here with his people and with humanity. He's here doing work in the world. Now, God does delegate much of the work 
that he does in the world to angels who carry out his commands. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will be heirs of salvation, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. And the dream here seems to be quite fantastic, doesn't it? I mean fantasy when I say fantastic. Maybe you'd understand it if I said it seems fantastical. It seems like out of this world, but the truth that it teaches is very real and very encouraging and a good reminder that God knows about everything that's going on in the world. All he's got to do is just walk down the stairs downstairs and he sees what's going on downstairs. Perhaps this is where we get the idea of the man upstairs, but he's not a man. God's not a man. God is God. God is leading, he's alongside, he's underneath you, and especially in hard times like Jacob was experiencing here. God is there. I am with you, he says. That's a good encouragement, isn't it? At the top of the ladder stood the Lord who identified himself as the God of Jacob's forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. He was watching out for Jacob as the lonely traveler made his way from home to an unfamiliar place. He did not forget the man upon whom his eye had been focused as part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now God promised the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, the grandson. And the promises that God mentions are these. I'll just list them out. First, the land will be inherited by Jacob and his descendants. Uh, He will have many descendants. The blessing of God will rest on all the families of the earth through Jacob and his descendants. Remember, Paul connects that to us. The blessing of God rests on you as non-Jewish as you may be, because of the seed, the Messiah who came through the Abrahamic line and gave himself. So the blessing of justification, that is, by faith we receive a right standing before God by believing in Christ, that gift is how God blessed all the families of the earth through Jacob. God also promises his presence with Jacob wherever he travels and he will not leave him until all those promises that God has made are fulfilled, and God will, in fact, bring Jacob back to this land. Now, Jacob is awestruck. He's filled with fear. He felt the presence of God in this place where God came down to mankind, so he called it, as we said, Bethel, the gateway or portal to heaven. It had been called a different name before. And I just want to pause and and say... You know, maybe I'm not developing this in the most, you know, eloquent fashion, but I think you're getting the idea that God is meeting with Jacob at a, be- a place called Bethel. And Jacob is going to worship God, we're going to see, and he's going to make a commitment to God. And he has a major life-transforming experience at this place. Now, he'll have another one on his way back 20 years from now as we'll get to, but can I just ask you a question? Where is your Bethel? Where is the place in your life? When in history in your life did you encounter God? I was thinking about answering this question myself, and I'll share with you one answer that came to mind. I remember studying in the graduate program at the university And I remember exactly the office where I was sitting because I was there for years (laughs) and uh, working away at this project, uh, multiple projects that I was working on, and God dealing with me during those times, especially early on, as I was wrestling 
over being called into ministry. And uh, while I'm there programming, you know, my son Microsystems computer and working on all these experiments and all of that, God is working and I'm thinking and wrestling about my salvation and about what I'm supposed to do with my life. I would say that's one, if not the one, Bethel for me. But what about you? I'm just giving you that example of testimony in my life. That wasn't when I was initially saved. I, I was born again before that. But there are some points in your life where you have to wrestle. And God moves in your life. Where is that place in your life? Do you have such a thing? You know, or have you been running away from your Bethel? Or would you think with me, yeah, I remember a time in my life when I did business with God, when I worked at trying to understand what does God want for me? What am I supposed to do with my life? Am I going to commit myself to God or am I going to be a worldling just running along the way of perdition? Am I going to serve him with all of my life or am I going to just give him a, a few scraps, the leftovers? Where is your Bethel? Of all the visions of God and the angels in the Bible as we transition to a new idea here, this one perhaps best shows the connection between heaven and earth, the closeness of God to his creation. The heavenly ladder shows up again one other time in Scripture. Do you remember it? Somebody does out there. The disciples of Jesus encountered this ladder. Look in John's Gospel in chapter 1, would you please? John's Gospel, chapter 1. Nathaniel is hanging around under a fig tree. And Philip goes and calls him. And Jesus says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's a good conclusion. Made pretty quickly, I would say. I don't know how he knew how to do that exactly how to figure that out. But verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Lord to me here is clearly making an allusion to Jacob's ladder. And he's saying, I am the ladder. I am the connection between heaven and earth. And upon me and at my orders, the angels come and go. And this would help authenticate Christ and uh, his ministry as God's holy servant. Jesus himself is picturing himself as the staircase, the connection between God and men. And so I think this picture draws heaven and earth together. It draws God down to us and us up toward God and, and really causes us to deal with the fact that, you know, at his Bethel and at yours, 
God standing at the top of that ladder, looking down and saying, I am your God. I am here. I, I, I am watching over you. I know what's going on in your life. I know your struggles. I know your loneliness, doubts, difficulties. And so the, the place became very important to the history of the Jewish people because of this remarkable event. So Jacob, notice uh, down towards the end, it says, And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you've given me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob set up this stone pillar to mark the place where he had slept. He poured out an offering on it. You know what the technical name for that is? A libation. Now, it wasn't a drink offering, I don't think, because it says, what, what does it say that he uh, poured out? Oil? Probably not going to drink that, but he poured out oil and offering to God. Furthermore, Jacob made a vow, and he said if God uh, did what he had promised would happen, then he would follow him all of his days. In fact, he says, uh, if God will be with me, if he will keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat, clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Notice also what he said at the end of verse number 22. By the, by the way, let me before I get there, do you think Isaac believed that God would keep that promise? Did he have a lot of doubt in his mind? He might have had some, don't we all? God says he'll be with us, but sometimes we might not feel like it. We might feel like Jesus did. Why have you forsaken me? That was a real feeling, wasn't it? Real feeling. But has God provided you clothing and food to eat and kept you in the way that you're going? And has he been with you all of this time? Would you be able to answer yes? I I can answer yes. I hope you can answer yes. He then promised that he would give God a tenth of all that he owned. He's following the pattern of Abraham. Remember Abraham in Genesis 14? He uh, came back from the Battle of the Kings and he gave a tenth to whom? Melchizedek, that very, very shadowy figure that pops out there in Genesis 14, comes back in the book of Hebrews You know, this chapter 28 and also 14 are the only two places in Genesis that mention a tithe. Of course, there are many others after Genesis, but these are the only two that mention the tithe. These lay the foundation for the people of Israel, God's command to them to give a tithe. Now, while we don't have that law in force today, by the way, was there a law in force here that he had to give a tithe? No law. It was voluntary. So we, and we have no law in force today as well that God would require a tithe. But what's interesting here is that this reflects Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jacob showed deep respect for God. He loved God. He was grateful to God. That showed that he was willing to give God his money. What did his money represent? His money represented his time. His money represented his labor, his efforts, his brains, his, the work of his hands and his feet. 
that represented his life and his self giving back to God instead of holding on to it all for himself. And so I ask as as a way of application, are you regularly giving to God as part of your worship? If not, let me pause that question. Are you regularly giving to God as part of your worship? He gave it to you in the first place. It's all His. But if you are not giving from your heart, where exactly is your heart? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You can tell a lot about a man by whether he gives and to whom he gives. You can tell a lot about Isaac here. I mean, Jacob, sorry, (laughs) prior generation. You can tell a lot about him because he gave. He promised to give. Now, the wording may seem to indicate that God was not his God presently, but he would be, you know, in, in 20 years from now. But it seems more realistic to think that Jacob already considered God to be his God. He's the God of my father, grandfather Abraham, the God of my father Isaac. Now he's my God as well. And, and that he fully expected God to fulfill his promises so that if God would be with me is not really uncertain in his mind. It's really more of a sense, if you will. Perhaps the, the he will be my God idea is that Jacob is saying he will continue to follow God or he would personally take up the mantle after the passing away of his father Isaac, he must have a, a sense of certainty in his mind that God is faithful to his promises and powerful enough to keep those promises. Even if he's a little bit wobbly in his commitment. <laughs> we might deny God, but what? He will never deny himself. We might be like Abraham was and Sarah, a little wobbly. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I'm not so sure that I'm going to be able to have a a son. She's 90, I'm 100. But eventually he grew strong in faith and did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Maybe you're a little wobbly. That's okay. God knows your frame, that it is dust. Maybe, could I say he knows your frame that it's a bit wobbly? He does. Jacob refers to God as the God of his father Abraham, the God of his father Isaac. In fact, he calls God the fear of Isaac. Jacob deceived to get a blessing. Remember from last chapter? But you cannot get a real blessing by deception, can you? You might get the words of the blessing, but you won't get the blessing itself. And despite all of that chicanery, God was still with him. And here's the thing. God gave him the blessing of Abraham and Isaac. He did not need to scheme to get the blessing. God was going to do it anyway. What is he so tied up for about the words of his dad with God going to give him that blessing? We trust God. I trust, I hope, and we trust that he will take care of us in the best way possible. He will never leave you. You might leave him for a time, but would you come back? Would you come back to him and declare him to be your God, which he is anyway, and follow him with yourself and your substance? 
listen, don't move away. Don't go away. Don't go anywhere, much less go far away. Don't do that until you are assured that God will be with you and that you can say that he is and will be your God. Don't launch out into your life, young person. Don't continue on in your life, older person, without saying, I am putting a stake in the ground, I'm putting a pillar in my life at Bethel, and I am saying, God is my God, and I am going to be with him, and he, I know, is going to be with me, and I trust that he will carry out his good promises to me. I'm not, I'm, I, you can't go forward in life without that, without that commitment, without that relationship with God. You're going to be going off into the dark if you do that. At least if you're going into a dark place, you have the light of life with you, in you, as you make that commitment at your Bethel. May it be the case in your life and in mine. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture that teaches us about so many things, even about giving, about making our life's commitment, choosing our own religion, as it were, choosing our God and saying, I'm going to be with that God, not with some other God, not with some empty thing, not with some idol, not with some empty worldly philosophy, but I'm going to be with God. I'm going to be his person, his man, his woman. I pray you'd help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.